So the most natural <clears throat> Advent passage we could turn to would be Romans 9, right? It all ties in. It all connects. <clears throat> I'm, I want to ask you this morning, if you're like me, which who's not like me? I'm just so common, so normal. Um, have you ever thought or said to somebody, I'm going to try something? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> when I was little, er, um, <clears throat> there was less of me than there is now. I don't know, I was probably, I don't know, nine or ten. I had one of them BMX bikes, okay? Banana seat, spongy handle grips. Loved that thing. It was black and red. Had the fenders that you could put your foot on and put up against the tire and go. But after a while, your fenders wear out, so you got to put a a card in the spokes to make that sound. But anyway, I was about this big and uh, built this big giant ramp. The guys in the neighborhood and me, and it was it was bigger than me. It stood taller than me, which wasn't saying a lot, but it was still pretty big ramp. And we called it Daredevil One. That was the name of the ramp. You got to name your ramps, by the way, if you didn't know that. <clears throat> but anyway, and we lined up a bunch of stuff behind it. Like, I don't know. I don't know, from here to the wall maybe or something. And at the very end of it, there was this, uh, I think it was a belt roller, actually. We said it was a rolling pin. It was a rubber roller with a metal center. It's at the end of it. <clears throat> and we took this big leaf off a tree and put it kind of as the landing pad. <clears throat> well, the, a guy that was few years older than me, he was probably like 14 or 15, he, he did it. He completed Daredevil 1. He jumped and landed on the leaf, and everybody's like, yeah. I said, I'm going to try it. All the guys were like, no, no, you better not, man. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Daredevil 1, here I come. So there's this little hill <clears throat> right in our house. You come off of it, and you go up the road. I'm pedaling as hard as I can. They're like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Man, I hit that ramp, and I was probably about 60 feet in the air. That's what it felt like. I'm just flying, man. I'm looking around. I didn't take my hand off. I was too scared. But anyway, I got to the end, and I hit that rolling pin. Boom! And just... I'm kind of laying there, and my banana seed had come off my bike, you know. I'm laying there. And what do you think the first thing one of these guys said to me was? I told you so. <laughs> Let me tell you what I didn't want to hear while I was laying there hemorrhaging inside. I told you so. He was right, but I didn't want to hear that and I didn't want to know that. I think the passage that we're going to look at today, God's going to say, I told you so. Why are you surprised? As we look at Romans 9 today, um, I want you to hear God saying, specifically to the nation of Israel, I told you so. And He's not saying it mean. He's not saying it sarcastically. He's like, no, just like we celebrate Advent and they missed Jesus' coming, but He had told them and told them and told them and told them that it was going to happen. That's exactly what we're going to look at today is something that God said over and over and over again was going to happen. 
And he's going to get to the end of it in our passage today, and he's going to say, I told you so. If you would, please stand with me. <clears throat> We're going to read Romans 9, verses 22 through 29, but our focus today will be on 24 through 29. <clears throat> but the context demands that we look at it this way. So, as I read, follow along in your Bible or up here if you don't have a Bible. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, Those who were not My people, I will call My people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not My people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. God, over the last few weeks, <clears throat> we've looked at some passages that puzzle us, confuse us maybe, frustrate us. But if I have learned nothing, nothing else from this chapter, it is that You are God and I am not. And I might have known that before, but I don't know that I've known it to the full capacity that I see it now through these words. And I pray that this morning we would humbly kneel, not before a manger, not even before a cross, but that we would kneel before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and receive what you have to give us from your hand through your word. You are God. We are not. And we recognize that and ask for your Spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> I want to, as quickly as I can, <clears throat> go back. And, and again, if you've got a Bible, if you want to kind of stroll with me through Romans 9 to this point, I don't have it. I'm not going to put it up there. It's just too much to put up there and flip and all that stuff. <clears throat> But we have seen some really, really, really big truths. And all of the Bible is true. All of the Bible is important. All of the Bible is powerful. But by a show of hands, and, and, I, and I mean this in all sincerity, how many of you have been confused by what we've talked about over the last few weeks in Romans 9? At all. I'm not saying you're still there. It's hard, okay? And I don't want to in any way, shape, or form deny that um, or apologize for it. Um, again, the, you're talking about big truths about a big God who is infinitely greater than we are. <clears throat> and as we... Uh, something I said, I think it was a few weeks ago, that, that's a good general term, a few weeks ago, because I don't know when it was, is that we are not trying to solve this mystery. We're just trying to proclaim the mystery. That is God, that is sovereignty, that is election, that is God's calling. Um, <clears throat> anybody that wants to break this chapter down to a little anecdote, to just a simple, well, this is what God did, you're missing the point. 
Anybody that wants to make this the center of their doctrine is missing the point as well. There's a whole Bible full of explanation of who God is and what He did. This is important, but it's not the only piece of doctrine in the Bible. So I want to run through quickly, and I think what happens is that when we go exegetically, when we go expositionally through Scripture, we do run the danger of missing the forest for the trees. And so I'm just going to kind of walk through what we've talked about up until verse 24 here. Um, Paul starts out by saying that his desire is for his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews, to be saved. And he says that they're Israelites. And he's an Israelite. And he wishes that if it were possible that he could be cut off from Christ and damned to hell in order that they might have salvation. Now, we just came out of Romans 8 before that, which says there's no way you can be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he's stating an impossibility. You can't be separated. I wish I could be separated for the sake of my brothers according to the flesh. Israelites, Jews, ethnic Jews. And he says that they had all the blessings. They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. <clears throat> and then verse 6, and we'll talk about this again in just a second. But verse 6, I think, is the main statement that sets the stage for the rest of Romans 9. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now Don read this morning from Galatians, that it is the children of what? Children of promise, children of faith, who are the sons of Abraham. And what Paul is saying here is, in verse 6, it's not as though the Word of God has failed since these Jews don't believe, because not all people who are ethnic Jews believed. And that was God's plan. So don't look at the, the, the Jewish nation and say, well, God's Word failed, so that, all that stuff you just said in Romans 8, which sounded so good, I can't trust it, I can't believe it. Because look at the Jews. They were God's covenant people and they don't believe. And you're saying you wish you could be cut off from Christ so that they might believe because they don't believe. And since they don't believe, God must not be who He said He was because He's made all these promises through 39 books of the Old Testament that He was going to take them as a covenant people and He was going to show His glory through them to the world. And they're not doing it, so God's not doing it, so I can't trust God, so the Word of God must not be true. And Paul says, no. It's not as though the Word of God has failed because we see not everybody who was born of Abraham, think Ishmael, were children of the promise. The children of the promise are the only ones who are counted as offspring. And then we saw <clears throat> that God chose Abraham out of sheer grace, not because of anything that Abraham had done. Remember, he was a moon worshiper living over here in Chaldea. And God said, I, I want you. And then He said, I'm going to give you a, a child... And Abraham's near 100, Sarah's near 90. Before they actually see that child, before then they try to do it themselves. It's like a do-it-yourself kit for a kid, you know. I'll, I'll put it together. So he brought Sarah's handmaid in and had a child by her, Ishmael. God said, not child of promise. So when he's 100, when Sarah's 90, they have a child given by God through Sarah, Sarah's dead womb, which is Isaac. And then Isaac gets married. Isaac, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, has twins in her womb. And before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
Rebekah was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. So God chose Jacob over Esau. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. And then verse 14, Paul says what? Is there injustice on God's part then? Well, by no means. For he says to Moses, remember this, what is God's glory? His goodness, His name, and His sovereign free will. Display God's glory more than anything else. So he told Moses, you want to see my glory, Moses? My glory is that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And then verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He says, He raised Pharaoh up for this very thing, so that His name, God's name, might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. And then last week, what you will say to me then, why does He still find fault for who can resist His will? And what was Paul's answer to that? John MacArthur said Paul's answer is shut up. I mean, really. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? You need to be quiet because you're talking about things you don't understand. You're talking about things you don't know about. You're trying to get inside the mind of God and you can't do that. And then he compared it to something that was molded, saying to its molder, why would you make me this way? And what we said last week was that's absurd. That's not possible. Things don't talk. Things don't have minds. Now we do and we do talk. But Paul's saying that's what it's like. It's like you trying to say to the potter, why would you make me this way? And the clay has nothing to say, was the statement last week. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? And then there's this phrase, even us whom He has called. Now, I don't know about you, but that statement there stops me. And i got to say, okay, God. I don't understand it all. <clears throat> I will never understand it all. I don't think in eternity I'll understand it all. And I'm okay with that. Because you're bigger than me, you're smarter than me, you're stronger than me, and your plan is perfect. As for this God, His way is perfect. So you've got questions, you've got concerns, that's fine, that's good. Bring them to God, just don't accuse Him of wrongdoing because it can't happen. And if you want what's fair, you get death, hell, and the grave. That's what's fair because we were all born sinners. Steve read this morning, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the state of us all. And we spent the first part of Romans talking about that. But God has called some to salvation. Which brings us to where we are today. Verse 24, Even us whom He has called... Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, we didn't cover verse 24 much last week, but it ties directly into last week's messages, last week's message, and leads us right into this week's passage. It's like it was written there on purpose or something. <coughs> Literary genius. <coughs> so, looking back at last week's passage, we saw that God desired to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. And remember, I said for was an important word there. For us. Four vessels of mercy. God wanted to show us His power and the riches of His glory. And one way that He did that was to show His wrath. And we're not comfortable with that. 
But God wants to show His power and His glory and He shows His wrath. And what we said last week was we should worship God for His wrath as much as we worship Him for His mercy. That's tough. But I can't worship one part of God and neglect another part of God. So He wants to show His glory so He shows us His wrath. And He makes known His power by enduring with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And let me say as succinctly as I can here, let me put all my cards on the table as far as election, as far as the doctrines of grace. I do not believe that in creation, in eternity past, God was saying, okay, this one will be saved, this one's going to hell. This one's saved, this one's going to hell. I'm going to make this one so that he goes to hell. That's going to be awesome. That's not what happened. And that's not what I'm trying to imply at all. Those that go to hell, go to hell because they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and they chose disobedience over obedience to the gospel. Okay? God didn't sit up there like a guy with some Play-Doh saying, I'm going to throw this one in the trash, I'm going to love this one. I'm going to throw this one in the fire, I like this one, all right, I'll keep him. That is not what I'm trying to imply here. And that's definitely not what Paul's saying here. So you say, well, how can it be? Well, let's keep working through 10 and 11 and start getting some of those answers. Some of those answers we're never going to get, and I'm okay with that. But please hear me say, I do not believe God just said, okay, I'll make this one for hell. you got no chance at all. So stay with me on that. I just wanted to make that clear. <clears throat> but he did want to show his power, so he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Those that God is seeking to make known the riches of his glory to, the vessels of mercy, here in verse 24, Paul says that those vessels are made up of even us whom he has called. So the us here, the even us, are the same ones that he has referred to in chapter 9 as, listen to this, children of promise, God's elect, those God has had mercy on, vessels made for honorable use, and vessels for mercy. That's just in chapter 9. Now, before we move on to anything else, I want to ask you, what did these vessels, what did these people do to obtain these blessings? Not a thing. They were dead in their sins and transgressions. God made the promise. God elected. God had mercy on. God made vessels for honorable use. And God made vessels for mercy. And if I can say anything about the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election, it is this. Give God the glory for salvation. Don't look at yourself and think that you figured it out. When you stand before God as one redeemed, you will say, Salvation belongs to you, O Lord. You're not going to say, Thanks for helping me figure this out. You're going to say, You did this. Thank you. So, let's move on from there. All of this is God's plan. It's God's doing and it's for God's glory. And He has done this work with and for people. Even us whom He has called. And here we see again it is God doing the calling. And who is He calling? He's calling us. And this is really kind of a revolutionary, revelatory statement that Paul's about to make here. Who is He calling? Us, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now if you were a Jew and you read that, 
man, the emergency brake has been pulled and you're sliding. Say, say what now? Because the Jews knew that they were God's chosen people. But Paul's already said, but not all of them are saved. So what's going on here? Paul says, because he's calling from the Jews, but not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Back at the start of this conversation, at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul's desire was to see his brethren according to the flesh receive salvation. And then in verse 6, let me go there. Paul makes it clear that the lack of physical Jews who are truly God's children is not a sign that God's word has failed. I'm going to read 6 through 8. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now that's pretty plain spoken there, right? What if you're a Jew and you're reading that? Like, oh, what? But, 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 and there's no buts here. Plain and simple, being a Jew, born a Jew, born ethnically a Jew, does not qualify you for the kingdom of God. And I'm not anti-Jew at all, but this is just saying that doesn't qualify you for the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> when we see this from, the, from early in the chapter and then look back at verse 24, we start to see that God's plan to show God's glory was never meant to just contain ethnic Jews. That was never His plan. And He's going to say in a minute, I told you so. Paul had also said back in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So if you'll remember that statement, golly, that was a long time ago. My question was, and it was a few weeks ago as well, who in here is a Jew? And nobody raised their hand. And then we read something like this, and now I'm like, now who's a Jew? Count me in. I want to be a Jew because being a Jew means that I'm one inwardly and that my heart is circumcised, which means I'm saved. So he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, keeping rituals and religious observations, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit which again is the same thing that Steve read this morning. <clears throat> God has had a plan and a design from the beginning to bring people to Him from where? Anybody remember Revelation 7 from last week? Every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language that will form a great multitude that no one could number. That's what Revelation 7 said. And Revelation 7 is the end, right? So God had the end in mind before the foundation of the world. And His plan was to draw people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now does that mean that He can only bring Jews? Can't be. You're like, well, He did spread the Jews out all over the world. That's not what this is saying. From every people, every nation, every tribe, every language. But now the question is, was that fact always known? Mm -mm, it wasn't. The Old Testament tells the story of an ethnic group, of a tribe of people descended from Abraham, one man called the Hebrews, also called the Israelites, and they were called the Israelites, named after Abraham's grandson Jacob, whose name God had changed to Israel. And God's plan 
was to show the world His glory so that the world would know that He alone is God. And the way that He was going to do that was to raise up a people who make Him known. Something that David said when he was running to the battle line against Goliath, he said, I'm doing this so that the world may know that there is a God in Israel. So he was proclaiming to the Philistines this God. And that was God's plan, was to proclaim to the whole world, I'm God. You want to know who I am? Look at the Israelite people. Look at the Hebrews because I've revealed myself to them, my character to them, my law to them. That was his plan. But back in our Romans passage, Paul makes it clear that God's plan was not just for Jewish folk, but for Jews and Gentiles. God's plan, God's Word has not failed just because not every Jew was saved. Because His plan was to call people from Jews and Gentiles, not just all the Jews. Now how far back does this plan go? Paul takes us to two Old Testament passages to show that even back in the Old Covenant, God was saying, I told you so, this is what I want to do. And so that brings us to Romans 9, 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now Paul is establishing that God's plan was to move beyond just Jews by quoting Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Hosea, but let me give you a brief background. This thing is messed up, okay? It really is. The book of Hosea will mess you up if you read it. And it's good, because it should mess you up. That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to mess up some people. Hosea was a prophet to the kingdom of Israel, which was the northern part of the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. After the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. Israel, which was the bigger, like ten, ten and a half tribes. And then you had Judah, which was a tribe and a half. So they divided into two kingdoms. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he prophesied right before this northern kingdom was defeated and sent into exile by the Assyrians. The Assyrian war machine rolled through Israel and just flattened them and drove them into exile. And God spoke to Hosea before this happened and told him to go take a harlot for his wife because God wanted to show the nation of Israel how what their relationship with God was. He had taken them as his wife and they had played the harlot. So Hosea marries a woman named Gomer. Golly! You can't help it. You just got to do it. So Hosea, he purchases her out of harlotry and he marries her. After he does that, she leaves him and goes back into harlotry. And God tells Hosea to go buy her back from harlotry again to show them, to show the Israelites how God has pursued them and what they have done. Now swallow that, guys. Go buy yourself a prostitute. Make her your own. Love her. Have children with her, which we'll talk about that in a second. And when she goes and plays the prostitute again, go buy her back. 
We can talk about the love of God, but I don't know that we understand. But he wanted them to understand. <clears throat> During all these goings on, Gomer has children. She has two sons and one daughter. Now get this. God says to name these children Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami. Now let me tell you what those names mean. Jezreel means God sows, S-O-W-S, which meant God was sowing calamity for the nation of Israel. That's a good name. Lo-Ruhamah means no mercy because God was saying that they were not going to receive mercy. And Lo-Ami means not my people because God was saying that the nation of Israel, these people were not His people. Now let me ask you a question. How much like Romans 9 does that sound? Huh? God sows calamity by preparing vessels for wrath. He has mercy on whom He has mercy. And there are those that are His people and there are those that aren't. So as Paul's writing Romans 9, I can just see his Jewish rabbi mind going, this is Hosea. This is the story of Hosea. This is exactly what he was talking about with these names. I can just see his mind working that way. And he's writing, I'm going to quote Hosea because, that man, that works. That fits. Sometimes when I'm writing these messages out, something pops in my head. I'm like, man, that works. Yeah, that's going in there. And I just see Paul doing that here. Hosea. Hosea's kids. Makes perfect sense. Paul writing Romans and thinking about Hosea, his harlot wife and their kids' weird names. And thus these quotes from Hosea when referring to who are God's people and who are not. And to prove his point of who God calls his people in quoting Hosea, Paul pulls from Hosea 2.23 and says... Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So there you see the quote from Hosea 2.23. Now I think it's right to mention that this quote here in Hosea 2.23 is actually referring in Hosea to God drawing the nation of Israel back to Himself after saying they weren't His people. So God said Israel wasn't His people, and then He said those who were not my people, who had been disowned basically, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So God had removed His favor from Israel, which was about to happen with Assyria. Assyria was about to plow them under. So they were referred to as not His people and not beloved, but God said He would act to bring them back to Himself, just like Hosea had his harlot wife. But did that mean that they would all be saved? The answer is no, that was never the plan. And then, back in Romans 9, Paul sees the passage from Hosea as applying to Gentiles as well because God's plan is to make those who weren't His people, His people. And those who weren't beloved, beloved. That was verse 25 of Romans 9, which is a quote from Hosea 2.23. And then it's reiterated in verse 26 of Romans 9, which is a quote from Hosea 1.10, which says... And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God or children of the living God in Hosea. Paul is pointing to this time in Israel's history and showing that God has always had plans to draw the unloved and the non-natural children into His family. And this shows that God's Word has not failed and that God's people are made up of those who wouldn't otherwise be known as His children. So you see the connection between Hosea and Romans 9? That's some nifty Old Testament work that Paul did there. But he's not done yet. Look at verses 27 through 29 of Romans 9. 
And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now Paul turns his attention away from the Gentiles in Romans 9 and he turns it back to the Israelites when he looks at these passages from Isaiah. The passages from Isaiah are from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23 and Isaiah 1, 9. And what's Paul saying here? In the Hosea passages, Paul was saying God would call Gentiles to be His people. And in these passages from Isaiah, Paul is saying there will be some from ethnic Israel who will be saved, but not all of them. Go back to 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. A lot of Israelites, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. The original passage from, Rome, uh, from Isaiah 10, and 23 reads like this. Let me put that up there. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So you see, that's not a direct quote. Paul is carrying forth principles into the New Testament, out of the Old Testament, saying this is what God did, this is what God said, and it's not precise. You say, well, isn't that dangerous? It can be. But Paul was a pretty good exegete, and he knew that there were principles involved here in Isaiah that needed to be conveyed here in Romans. So I'm not saying trust Paul blindly, but I'm saying he's not misrepresenting the text by not quoting it exactly. So don't let that get between what's going on here. But I I did want to point out that it wasn't a direct quote. Because he says, "...the Lord of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth." Now what does all that mean? I think it's pretty clear there are a lot of people in national Israel, but only some of them, a few of them, a remnant will be saved. And it's not exactly what we see in Isaiah, but the message is the same. Lots of Israelites, but only a remnant will be saved because God. That line in the Isaiah passage is pretty powerful. Go back to that. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Man, put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. Now we would expect to say, love is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Peace and joy and happiness are decreed, overflowing with righteousness. And that's true. But so is destruction. God's destructive decree is just as righteous as His loving and merciful decree. That's hard to swallow. But God is holy. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. Sounds a lot like vessels of wrath prepared for dishonorable use, doesn't it? And then with the clear message that even the decree of destruction is overflowing with righteousness, I think we've got to stand and go, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth 
I'm not going to accuse God of being unfair or unjust or unholy or unrighteous. Even His decree of destruction is overflowing with righteousness. Now when referring to only a remnant being saved, does your mind go anywhere else in the Old Testament when you think about a remnant? I think about Elijah. He had just had this mighty battle with the prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Baal, little old Elijah. And they have their offering set up. And they say, let's just make, a, let's make up a game. And let's say that whichever God answers by fire and consumes the sacrifice, that God will be God. Prophets of Baal are like, awesome. So 400 plus of them, they're dancing around. There's a God, Baal, Baal, we want some fire. Baal, send some fire. It's not working. Elijah's like, why don't y'all be a little louder? Maybe he's asleep, you know. And so they start cutting themselves and crying out, Baal, we need fire! Baal, we need fire! Well, Baal never answers with fire. So Elijah just pours it on, literally. He, they've been in a drought for three and a half years, first of all. So he says, bring some water. And he pours water on his sacrifice. He says, bring some more water. So he pours some, and it's so much water, it's running off into a trough around the thing. So much water, you think this thing's never going to burn. Elijah says, God, send some fire. Boosh! Fire comes, consumes the whole thing. Elijah's like, da 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 God is God. And they're, they're actually crying out. You know what they cried out? This is pretty cool. They cried out, Elijah, the Lord, He is God. Elijah, the Lord, He is God. That's what the prophets of Baal and all the people of Israel were saying. So he's got this mighty victory for he's a jelly good fellow. And where does Elijah go? He runs off and hides because he's scared that Jezebel's going to kill him. And she would have. So he's in a cave, hiding. And he hears an earthquake, and he hears a fire, and he hears a mighty wind. But the Lord's not in the fire, the earthquake, or the wind. And then he hears a still, small voice. Hiding in a cave from a woman. Remember, remnant. <clears throat> so he runs off in fear, hiding in a cave. God comes to him and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? To which Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Now, let me stop a second. <laughs> God is saying, Elijah, go back. I, want, I need you back there. And on your way, I'm going to appoint some leaders of other nations. <laughs> Which is just crazy. So anyway. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king of Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphet, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah thinks, I, even I, am the only one left in all of Israel who holds to you and your grace and your love and your covenant. And God said, no. I appoint leaders of other nations... I'll raise up a prophet behind you to take your place. And I want you to know I've got 7,000 people in Israel 
who have not bent the knee to Baal. And he says, I will leave 7,000 people. All these Israelites, and God has preserved a remnant. 7,000 people. And it was a pretty big nation, so that's not a lot of people. But who kept them? Who preserved this remnant? God did. That's God saying, you're not the only one left, Elijah. I will leave 7,000 out of the whole nation who are mine. And listen, church, God always preserves His remnant. That's His plan. That's what He does. And back in Romans 27 and 28, it says that although there are as many Israelites as there are grains of sand on the seashore, which is what God said would happen to Abraham, how many will be saved? Only a remnant. And then in verse 29, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now what's that mean? Now what did God do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Everybody knows what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Fire and brimstone and sulfur raining from the heavens destroyed it, wiped it off the face of the earth. And He judged them and He destroyed them for their wickedness. And listen, Israel, if God had not chosen a remnant out of Israel, if He had not preserved a remnant for Himself, both from Jews and Gentiles, we would have all been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, which really sounds a lot like hell to me. If God hadn't preserved a remnant out of Jews and Gentiles, we would have all ran face first into hell. But God. And God would have been right to judge Israel. God would have been right to judge all nations. And yes, God would have been right to judge us, just like He did Sodom and Gomorrah, had He not chosen to preserve a remnant for Himself. had He not chosen to show mercy to whom He chose to show mercy. If God hadn't chosen to preserve a remnant, even of the chosen people of Israel, they would have ultimately been judged and destroyed because of their sin. This puts the work of God in salvation from Genesis to Revelation as an act of grace, an act of total unmerited favor shown to both Jews and Gentiles for the purpose of getting glory for Himself by His sovereign act of salvation. That is God's plan. That is God's purpose. And it is going to happen. Both for Jew and Gentile, for every nation, tribe, people, and language. And if He hadn't done that, we would have all been like Sodom and Gomorrah. So Merry Christmas. Happy Advent. Happy Hanukkah. God's going to rain down destruction on us like He did Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not the good news. The good news is God has mercy. God chooses a remnant and God gets glory from a remnant.
but if he hadn't. So how do we apply this? You're like, I love it when he says that because that means he's almost done. I can read y'all's minds. I'm, I, I want to say this up front before application. We talk about the message sometimes on the way home from church, and then a lot of times at Sunday nights we talk about the message in our Sunday evening, somewhat irregular devotionals. Um, and I'll say, what were the application points? And most of the time they can't name them. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, we've got to do better with application points. Because that's the point. If we're not in here to accumulate knowledge and say God would have killed us like Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, there's application to be drawn from the passage that we looked at today. And that's what's important. How are we going to live in light of what God has shown us here in this passage? So I'm going to give you three points of application, which is kind of standard. And I did kind of alliterate them to help you memorize them. Okay? The first point of application is we as God's people must be gospel-minded. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Romans, Romans 1.16, what does Paul say? Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For who? For all who believe, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek or the Gentile. So if anybody is going to be saved, we as God's people have to be gospel-minded. We have to think about the gospel. We have to turn it over in our heads. We have to pray about it. And we have to present it. When's the last time you preach the gospel to somebody? You're like, oh, here's the point of the message where he makes me feel guilty. No! I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to spur you on to love and to good deeds. And what is the greatest love that you could show somebody in this Advent season? What is the greatest good deed that you could do for somebody? Preach the gospel to them. Well, what if they're Jewish? Preach the gospel to them. What if they're Muslims? Preach the gospel to them. What if they're atheists? Preach the gospel to them. Because the gospel is the power of God. Did you hear what I just said? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For everybody who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. I stayed with my nephew when I went to Lexington Friday night. He goes to the University of Kentucky. And I just, I'm telling this story because it's funny. That's really the only reason I'm telling it. I mean, we're talking about being gospel-minded, but this doesn't necessarily have to do with that. But I'm walking in, and uh, he's having a Christmas party at his house, a college Christmas party. Okay? I, I was working on my message upstairs while they're partying downstairs, which is funny. But anyway, this lovely young lady is walking in beside me. And she's like, are you Corbin's uncle? I'm like, I am. She's like, oh, I've never met a pastor before. I'm like, what? What? She's like, I've never met a pastor before. She's like, Corbin said that you were a pastor. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, what? And she said, I've never met a pastor before. I'm a Muslim. I'm like, oh, I'm Jason. She's like, I'm his friend. I said, well, it's nice to meet you, his friend. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. My name's Miriam. I'm like, Miriam's good to meet you. I didn't get to talk to Miriam anymore but I really wanted to share the gospel with Miriam. I didn't get to, but be praying for Miriam. My nephew talks about her quite a lot, and he, and he asks me good questions about how to address her and how to, how to speak to her and how to preach the gospel to her, and he has preached the gospel to her and told her why Christians are different than Muslims, and it's beautiful. 
But it was just kind of funny because she's like, I've never met a pastor before. Okay, you have now. Congratulations. So we've got to be gospel-minded. You're like, well, where's that in this passage? Well, the passage is saying God preserves a remnant. Well, how does He save people? He saves people through the gospel. That's the only way. We'll see that later on in 10 and 11. So we've got to be gospel-minded. GM. Keep that in mind. GM. Because we're going to alliterate these application points so that you can say what the application points were later. Lily, Hannah, gospel-minded is number one. Number two, point of application. We've got to be gospel-minded and we have to have a global mission. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. We are looking for total world impact. We are looking to impact the ends of the earth until the ends of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if your vision is not global, it's not big enough. God's plan is for the gospel to be pervasive in the entire world. And there are billions of people who've never heard the gospel. There are billions of people who have never heard the name Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to be gospel-minded, we have to have a global mission. Listen, that map, I couldn't have been any happier that that map was hanging on that wall when we walked in this building. And we'll put up the total world impact thing. He said, we'll take it down. I'm like, no! No, don't take it down. Leave it there. It's very easy, especially around Christmas, to get real centered on us. To get centered on Advent and candles. And that's good. That's so good. But it's not good if it stops there. There is a world full of people who don't know Jesus. And if we are going to be gospel-minded... We have to have a global mission for every nation, tribe, people, and language. God is preserving a remnant from all of those. So we have to be gospel-minded. We have to have a global mission. And what is our hope? The only hope we have for preaching the gospel, the only hope we have for trying to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time, GM, what do you think? God moves. What we've seen all through Romans 9 is that God is the active player here. God is the one who behind the scenes is shifting gears and moving things around and orchestrating things so that everything works out according to His plan for His glory so that He preserves a remnant from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people so that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Our hope to be gospel-minded, to have a global mission is that God Himself moves. How bold should you be if you are gospel-minded and you've got a global mission and you want to share the gospel with somebody? Who's going to save that person? You? How emboldened should you be if you're like, I am carrying within me the very power of God into salvation and God, I am trusting you to honor your word. I'm going to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth until the end of time and I'm going to put my faith in the fact that you are going to move and you are going to make this happen. The righteous is as bold as a lion. 
Why? You see Lion King? That one part where Simba's trying to roar real loud? Rawr! Rawr! He tries to build it up, and then Mufasa. Ooh, say it again. Mufasa. Mufasa roars behind him, and he's like, that's the picture. I got nothing in and of myself. I'm Simba. But I've got the lion of the tribe of Judah standing behind me who wants to roar through me. And he's going to do that as I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I don't know what the gospel is. The gospel is this. We are all born sinners, every one of us, and we need a Savior. And God sent that Savior in a manger in the form of Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, very God of very God, very man of very man. He lived a perfect life. He went to a Roman cross and took our sins upon Himself. God punished our sins in Christ. Jesus died. He was buried. We proclaimed it this morning. He was resurrected. He showed Himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. Then He ascended into heaven where He is seated at God's right hand right now. And we lowly, nasty, poor, pathetic sinners can look to Him and say, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness of sins and He will grant it. Free of charge. Through grace, by grace. Because God moves. Roar, church. And when people get saved as you preach the gospel, what's God going to say? I told you so. I told you it would happen. I told the Israelites it would happen. That it wouldn't just be them, that it would be everybody. It would be Jews and Gentiles. And I told you, church, that if you are gospel-minded and you have a global mission and you preach the gospel... I will move. I told you so. We don't normally like to hear that, but man, sounds pretty good right now. Let's pray. God, we necessarily have to have you move in us and through us. We necessarily have to rely upon your grace for salvation. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Our destiny was destruction. Our eternal home was to be hell. But God. God, I am so glad that you have a global mission. That the gospel is not just for white people in America. And God, I pray that you would put on our hearts a deep longing and desire for the nations. In this place, this afternoon, God, put on the hearts of this people a longing, a desire to preach the gospel to every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. Knowing that your plan has always involved drawing people from all over the world, from every person, every people group in the world. And God, if we're satisfied with Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, stir us up, God. Help us to be gospel-minded. 
Help us to have a global mission and help us to know that, God, you move through these things so that you might be treasured, so that you might receive glory in and through us. We need your help and you offer it freely and you can do so much more than we could ever think or imagine. God, would you do it through us? Help us, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.